for those of you who have not met me yet, my name is Seth, and I am the lead minister here at Echo. Uh, I've only been here a couple weeks. It's my first time up, so I'm glad to be able to share the word with you here today. Um, so in the creation story in the book of Genesis at the beginning of the Bible, uh, there is this word in the Hebrew translation called Elohim. And Elohim is a plural word uh, that we translate strictly as God. And what I like about this word is that it causes me to read the creation story in a different way. So when I read the creation story, I, for whatever reason, have this picture of like a pre-incarnate Christ, meaning before he came here 2,000 years ago to do his ministry, kind of conducting this symphony uh, throughout creation. And he's making this thing, and he's making that thing, and he's making these things, and he's making these plants and these animals, and just scores and scores of things that we have that, are, uh, that we get to experience here on a daily basis. And then when he's done with that stuff, he looks at it and he calls it good. And then he decides that that's not enough, and then he creates us. And when I read this again, I see this being, God, kind of kneeling down and scraping together the leaves and the mud and the things that have just been created and then sculpting up this person, Adam, that is us. And then the text says that he breathes the breath of life into its nostrils and the man became a living being. And that's always exhilarating to me because I think of that first breath that Adam must have taken and then he looked across what had just created him and he knew exactly what that was. It was God. It was his creator. That wasn't enough. God decided that Adam needed a helper so he made a helper for Adam and that person was Eve. And then if you have any familiarity with the story at all, you know that not very long after that, everything goes downhill. Adam and Eve take and eat the forbidden fruit from this tree. They're deceived by a snake who in turn causes this nasty curse upon the earth and also itself the snake. And then men and women are consistently at odds with each other not long into the book of Genesis and therefore throughout. And this power struggle begins, right? And that's a curse that we all have to live with here on earth. So today, uh, following our series that we've been going through called Grafted, we're going to talk about how Jesus allows us to overcome that power struggle by fully grafting women into the Christian community and how we can work together to fight uh, at least part of this curse uh, from Adam and Eve. Uh, my wife pointed out to me in irony this morning that across the country here on Father's Day, a lot of people are going to be talking about men and their congregations, and we're going <laughs> to flip the script a little bit, and we're going to be talking strictly about women. So, um, I probably don't have to explain a whole lot if you pay attention to the news and 
current cultural contexts about things that are going on, but women are rising up, and it's a good thing. Uh, but we also have to recognize the past. Um, and specifically for what we're talking about here today in the Old Testament, um, and then in ancient cultures, women a lot of times were seen as property. So women were something that you would trade goods for. And then uh, throughout, again, mo most of the, or a lot of the Old Testament, they're quiet. We do have a few examples, Deborah, uh, some others that are, that are put um, in, you know, positions of power. But for the most part, uh, women are, are quiet um, until Jesus shows up. So our main passage today is supposed to be from Ephesians 5, and I'll get to that here in just a few minutes. Uh, but I think it's important that we set up the writings of Paul in this book of Ephesians with the teachings of Jesus. Uh, Paul is asking the Ephesians to step boldly into this new sort of treatment of women, and Jesus empowers us to take this step uh, with the way we value them by the way he talks in the book of Luke and some other passages that we'll talk about too. So if you would, if you would tap or turn with me to Luke chapter 10 and we'll be in verses 38 through 42. I'll give you a second to get there. Uh, I like to read from the NLT, the New Living Translation. So if you are tapping there, you can pull that one up. I know the Bibles in front of you are the NIV, um, but I like this one. I like the way it reads. So uh, I'm going to read this one for you. Verse 38, as Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister, Mary, sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, My dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all of these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. A few things to note about this passage and what Jesus is doing and why it's important. The first thing is this. Mary chooses not to help her sister Martha in preparing this big dinner. And because of that, we sort of view her as a rebel. We don't really have the exact reason why Martha decides to sit at the feet of Jesus, uh, but what we can infer from the text is that she has heard and understands Jesus' teaching to not worry. No one exemplifies this better than Mary in this instance. Uh, later in the Bible, and uh, in a similar situation, this is the Mary that takes out this expensive bottle of perfume, uh, oil, sometimes it's translated, and she dumps it all over Jesus' head to anoint him. And she catches flack for that too. And of all people to call her out on this is Judas. He walks in and he's like, listen, that perfume, this oil that we're anointing Jesus with is worth a year's wages. And Mary, she's just 
she's all shoulders. She's just like, yeah. I mean, what do you want me to do? This is what we have. And Jesus, of course, uh, rebukes Judas for saying that. That's the Mary we're talking about here. She doesn't worry about everything all the time like some of the other disciples. She has heard what Jesus said, and she knows that the Lord is going to provide for her. Here's the second thing. Uh, It's that Martha is very distracted in this moment. So, personal story here. On a near weekly basis, um, I ask my two younger uh, daughters, I have three, uh, the two younger ones share a room together, and every week I ask them to go clean their room. And again, on a near weekly basis, one of them comes to me, and it's a different one every time, comes to me and says that the other sister isn't helping. And my response is, is the same every time uh, when I yell up the stairway, hey, daughter, you know, like depending on who it is, I'll use their name. I don't just yell, hey, daughter. Um, Help your sister clean the room. Like every time, that's the routine that we go through. Martha's sort of doing that same thing when she's like, will you tell her to get in here and help me? Um, The difference is that she has the Messiah sitting in her living room and uh, his feet are propped up and he's telling these stories about the coming kingdom of the Lord and teaching them how to live and, and whatnot. And Martha's only worried about putting this dinner together to honor him. Martha's been crippled. Uh, by the cultural expectations that have been heaped upon her people for centuries. And she can't understand that the real honor would be to sit there and to listen to Jesus teach while she can. So Jesus, in only the way that he can, uh, he decides to teach her a different way of doing things when he says probably the most shocking thing in this passage This is what he says. There is only one thing worth being concerned about, and Mary has discovered it. If you're in the room at that time, this is the thing you're doing. You're like, oh, I don't know about this. Say what now, Jesus? (laughs) Uh, Some commentaries describe this interaction as unusual, or not the norm, but the reality is, is that it would have been shocking. This statement would have caused raised eyebrows and maybe even a few gasps. And the story ends at this passage, uh, but it's important to note here that what Jesus is doing is that he's inviting Mary into discipleship, which quite simply doesn't happen. Females do not sit with rabbis during this time. They do not sit and hear the teachings of the rabbi in this way. And Jesus is saying, no, this is the way we're doing things now. Um, More shocking uh, is that we read this and maybe we think that only Martha and Mary are there. Uh... But there would have been men in the room that heard him say this, I think. Um, and that's what really creates the shock factor. Uh, and this isn't, because if the story says that Jesus and his disciples showed up at Mary and Martha's house. 
And we only get this story about Mary, but we can make an assumption that they're at least around and they're going to hear this teaching that Jesus has. And this isn't the first or only time uh, that Jesus is going to do something like this. Uh, a few other stories that you can read on your own if you want to take a few notes uh, where Jesus breaks away from tradition about how it's okay to interact with women. Uh, the first one is the poor widow's offering. And then uh, there's one with the woman at the well where Jesus has this interaction with a prostitute. And that would not have been okay either. Um, but Jesus does it anyway because uh, of, the, of the way he's trying to change the thought based around how people are going to interact with women. So, side note, just to give you a little insight into how I read things uh, to make it a bit more interesting for myself. I think it's funny that with a few of these stories, um, so the disciples, they'll try to rebuke Jesus when, you know, flashback to that story where Mary pours the oil on the top of Jesus' head and Judas freaks out. He's like, that's a year's wages. I always like to read that sometimes as if Jesus corrects them like they're squabbling children. And it just makes it a little more fun for me. So, <laughs> you know, Judas is like, we shouldn't be doing that. And, uh, and Jesus is like, go to your room or go stand in the corner. <laughs> like, I don't know. You don't have to do it that way, but that's the way I do it because it makes it a little more fun. It gets more out of your Bible reading. So give it a shot this week, you know. Um, <laughs> so, those are just a few. There are more stories uh, about how Jesus treats women and about how he's trying to get us to change our minds and to flip the script on how we do things. Uh, and you would think that with all of these stories that we have from Jesus that we would have enough to go on, but we don't. <laughs> So that brings us to the passage at hand today in Ephesians 5. And then specifically, we'll be dealing with uh, verses 21 through 33. So if you want to tap over there or flip there, um, uh, I'm going to set up the first half of this so that we can get to the second half. So in the first half of chapter 5, Paul lays out what it's like to what he calls live in the light, out of darkness and live in the light. Um, he's giving some instruction on how to live, and he says uh, this phrase, he says, imitate God in everything you do. And he's also giving some pretty distinct imagery of family life and tying that into how our relationship should be with God when he calls us God's children. And after he lays out all of this, um, he starts to talk a little bit about how to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he makes some really good suggestions like singing songs and to make music to the Lord with our hearts, which I think is really beautiful. Um, he writes all that stuff and then he gets into some really important and well-studied text. Um, if you haven't read this before, we'll read it here together and uh, then we'll work through it here uh, piece by piece. So it says this, starting in verse 21, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. 
He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. This is a great mystery. But it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. Obviously, there's a lot to dissect here. And you may have an opinion one way or another on how this should be read. But I want to open up something that I think uh, can help us fight this power struggle that I talked about at the beginning of the message. It's important that we keep this previous story about Jesus at the forefront of our minds when we're reading this text. Um, That being the story about Jesus, Mary, and Martha, where he invites her into discipleship and starts to shift and change and reshape the ways that we are to view and to respect and to treat and to love women and our wives. So what's Paul saying? Uh, He's reiterating that, right? Jesus' stance on the change in women's roles and how they should be treated. And what he's doing is he's giving us instruction and explaining to the men, husbands, in fact, how they should be treating their wives. Not all of this is new to the Ephesians. Some of this they would have known because they would have heard it from their philosophers, Cicero, their Greco-Romans. So they would have heard other people talk about how to respect uh, each other. But what's different here, or what's the the new thing that's being talked about, um, is that husbands are to treat and respect their wives with reverence to Christ, Um, not as property. There's no dowry. There's no change. There's no giving away of something to get something in return. It is a union. It's something that brings us together. And that's what Paul is trying to instruct us through what he understands from Jesus. So what we already know in verse 21, submit to one another. As Christians, uh, we should not be concerned with personal gain. We um, are to give up our earthly desires because we are playing on the same team. Uh, Any type of motivation towards taking should be right out. Verses 22 through 24, wives submit to husbands, husband husband love your wives, and then the how becomes important. And we have to ask ourselves, how then shall husbands respond to the gospel and respect their wives And the answer is with love. And that's the shift. 
Love, once again, is this revolutionary term with which Christians are supposed to respond. We do not rule with an iron fist. We do not collect riches at the expenses of others. And we do not steamroll our way to the top. We do not use brute force, patriarchy, and misogyny to get our way. No, we use love as it's exemplified by Jesus. Flashback to the story about Mary and Martha, and Mary is sitting in a place that shows Jesus' respect as the teacher of disciples, and she's sitting at his feet. This is the position that we see disciples taking on occasion throughout the Bible, and Jesus and his teaching about love, with these people gathered around him, he's got the power of the universe at his fingertips, and I don't doubt for one second that if he wanted to do it a different way, he could have prayed and brought down legions of angels and ruled with an iron fist, but that's not what he chooses to do. He chooses love. That's Jesus' preferred way for us to, to be with each other. And matter of fact, we have Jesus taking the position of the disciples when he kneels at their feet and washes them. And that confuses them when he does it. They're like, no, you shouldn't be doing this. You're the Lord. And he's like, this is how it's done. I give up my position of power and authority to serve you. That's the example Jesus gives us. This is the type of love and honor that God has for his people. And it's the same type of love and honor with which he expects us to treat others. And of course, Jesus obediently carries out this command uh, to fervently love when he dies on the cross, bearing the weight of our sins. So there's this power struggle. How can we overcome it? Men have power. We don't want to give it up. What are we scared of? How can we help? So when I write my messages, I sit on the third floor of the downtown public library. And it's the quietest floor in the building. And I like the view of the city from up there. It overlooks Main Street and uh, 8th Street to the south. And I like the view up there. And of course, uh, when I need a break, I can watch the pigeons uh, frolic up there. And they fly from roof to roof. And they fight each other. And it's, it's a good break. That's all I'm saying. So. You come off the elevator and you move straight to the back and just to the right there's this glass that kind of cuts in all the way around the corner and down both sides of the building. And hanging from the ceiling in that space um, are these two posters that have quotes on them. And uh, those are going to be kind of hard to see. But that's the best picture I could get. And uh, luckily I wrote them down so I'm going to read them to you. So... The first quote uh, on your left (laughs) says this. It's from Sojourner Truth, who was a a women's rights activist and an abolitionist. She says this. "Um, If women want any rights more than what they've got, why don't they just take them and not be talking about it? And then the quote on the other side is from uh, American Christian theologian Reinhold Niebuhr. And he says this, love is the motive, but justice is the instrument. I read these every time I go in there, and I've been in there countless times uh, to read and study. And I got to thinking about these quotes, and uh, when I was sitting there writing this, I thought, this is a 
perfect application for what we're trying to teach. And I want to try to glean something out of these. So regarding the Sojourner Truth quote, think of the ramifications of feeling forced into having to take something you already deserve. That can have a devastating effect on the psyche. Uh, With the Me Too movement and celebrities going down left and right for all kinds of different things that are going on and the rampant misogyny that's apparent in our culture today, I think we can do a better job respecting women in general. Have you seen this shirt? It says, cool story, babe, now make me a sandwich. I've seen teenagers with this shirt on. It's not funny, man. (laughs) It's not cool at all. I've heard teenagers talk about this or say this, acting like it would be okay at a youth conference in the company of their youth ministers. Not funny, man. And it's not cool. You can get it in any variety of colors, too. This is not good. It's not funny. This tears people down, man. We have to fight this culture, both as friends and as parents. All right, get rid of that. Regarding the Niebuhr quote, uh, everyone deserves justice. If love is truly our motivator, then our love needs to be the kind of love that allows us to sacrifice, that that requires us to sacrifice uh, for other Christians. For those of us who are married, that would include our spouse. At what cost, think about this, at what cost should we not give up the power struggle? Jesus allowed Mary to sit at his feet and to learn the ways of the disciples. Fully and unhindered, we should do the same. Here's a few more ideas. Might be a little more practical. So, I think most spouses are doing a good job when they pay attention enough to notice and say something when their spouse looks good. Um... Uh, However, what I know to be true about my own wife is that she feels more empowered when I place value on her opinions and I respect her mind. That seems obvious when I say it here in front of you guys. But it is good to have that constant reminder that we as men need to be in tune to that. Um, It's important, uh, particularly as men, to give credence to the thoughts of women. And I think we should place a high emphasis on inviting them into important conversations. Here's something else. And maybe you can consider this homework. I don't know. Maybe we do a little role reversal this week um, when it comes to stereotypical household chores. If it's normally expected that another person in your home is supposed to do something throughout the week, maybe the other person does that instead this week or for two weeks, or maybe permanently, I don't know, like that's up to you. (laughs) Just figure out what a few of those things are and then take it upon yourself to to do something different. Um, This seems like a minor thing at the forefront, uh, but it's little things like this that help us start to break down barriers and to get through walls when we're talking about what we're talking about today. And here's here's the final thing. Um, We have to fight the urge to be in control. It's very tempting to claim authority over another person uh, when we think we have the power. If there's something that sticks out to me when it comes to Jesus' teaching about leadership and how to get people to follow, um, it's that he prefers... 
I might go so far as to say he requires humility. Um, for men, uh, we have to resist the urge to be called, uh, we have to resist the urge to be what are called stonewallers. And uh, that is someone who puts their foot down instead of talking about things or working through issues instead of just saying like, this is the way it is and that's the way we're going to do it. Um, it's better to talk. So there's a psychological researcher and clinician named John Gottman. Some of you might know him. Uh, he says that women bring up 80% of the issues in a heterosexual marriage and that men are stonewallers 85% of the time. <laughs> Those are big numbers, man. And uh, it's something for us to think about. Um, when we're thinking about this issue and, uh, and how to overcome this power struggle. That's it. Fight the curse. Be strong. Bond together. We're in this together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much uh, for this space to come and worship and to hear your word today. I pray as we go out throughout our week, um, we can keep this message in mind and that we're always striving to do what you want us to do. Uh, Lord, we love you and we thank you for your son who gives us uh, all of this and, and um, allows us to live uh, a life unhindered. Uh, Lord, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.